0: Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 212. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Jordan Prestinger, the guy from Jordan
1: teaches jiu-jitsu. He sure does. How's it going, Jordan? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. You know, you're uh, one of the top podcasts for a reason in the jiu-jitsu realm. So yeah, it's honored honor to be here.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate the kind words. And I mean, of course, you're one of the top YouTubers for a reason as well. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. I see you all over the place, man. I see you dominating Reddit. I see you dominating YouTube. And I only hear good things about your material. So I am looking forward to this conversation. And what I was hoping we could do is talk a little bit about keeping safe, talking a little bit about scrambles. But before we get into that, why don't you give yourself just a quick intro for people who might not be familiar with you?
1: Yeah, my name is Jordan Pressinger. I'm a black belt. I live in Canada, just like Steve does. And uh, yeah, I own my own gym. I started a YouTube channel like a year and a half ago. It's going really well. And just my plan is just to dominate jujitsu content creation. And I'm working hard every day to make that happen.
0: You know, it's funny. I don't think people understand how hard it is to make content. I've actually been wanting to do a panel or something specifically about this. I mean, I remember when I started, I thought, ah, this won't be that big a job. You know, you spend an hour a week recording and then you push a few buttons to publish and that's it. It's like a few years later, here I am basically doing this as a full-time job. It's so much work. And I assume it's the same for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I had the same feeling when I started, I was like, I can put out like, you know, a video every other day or something like that. And then once I realized if you actually want to get traction and attention to your videos, you need to put like an insane amount of effort Then I realized that's pretty unsustainable. So I try to do like one a week and then I have like an editor and whatnot to help me like post other stuff and edit the podcast and stuff like that. So, yeah, content creation is not easy. And, you know, the ones that are putting the most amount of effort into it are the ones that are succeeding the most. It's like not like a, you know, a crazy like recipe for success. You just got to work really hard and give people what they want to see. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Consistency is the key over anything else when it comes to making the stuff. I mean, I, I, one thing that I can say, if anyone out there wants to make a jujitsu podcast, like the landscape is littered with the corpses of dead jujitsu podcasts that got 20 episodes in and then gave up because it was too much work. So that's, that's the main thing I think that's more important than anything else is if you want to go down that journey, you've got to commit to the long haul and being consistent. And that's a lot harder than people think. 100%.
1: 100%. And actually, I want to ask you too. like, what made you decide to want to, you know, start a Jiu podcast? Because I think it's especially hard. For me, it's easier because I have an audience. So it's like easier to start a podcast. But for someone that doesn't have an audience already, that's starting a podcast from scratch, like I think it's especially difficult, especially in the Jiu realm. So yeah, you know, I know it's like, you know, interviews kind of about me, but I also interested in you, like, what made you decide to start the podcast?
0: Yeah, good question. I mean, we started this thing and never expected it to go anywhere. My brother and I, four years ago now, man, time flies. But I remember we were sitting around and talking about jujitsu as we always do, because we're both black belts, but he's a black belt under a completely different lineage from me. So he has a very different way of thinking about things. and He's also a, a jujitsu professional. He owns a gym. He's a competitor, whereas I'm a hobbyist. And so we got to talking about jujitsu and, you know, we kind of realized that despite the fact that we've got these very different backgrounds, there's a conceptual underlying to how we approach jujitsu. So we kind of put our ideas together. We started writing stuff down. We decided at some point to just start recording it and putting it out there. And for some reason, and I'm still not sure why, we got a lot more traction out of the gate than I expected. And so it kind of became a a hobby of expectation where for the first year or so, I just kept doing it because people were expecting it. Then the pandemic hit and, you know, just to be safe, because we'd never asked anyone for any money. We'd never sold any product, but we kind of got thinking, okay, well, just in case something happens with work, you know, my brother and I thought maybe we should try to monetize this podcast. And so we started off by putting out a Patreon and I was really, frankly, surprised pleasantly by the fact that people were actually willing to pay for this. So over the years that's evolved and we don't really do the Patreon anymore so much, although it does still exist, but we now sell our premium stuff and it's been going real well. And so it kind of has evolved from like a, just a hobby to this thing that actually, for some reason, I still don't understand grew an audience. And now the the big focus for us, of course, other than just doing this podcast is a, driving the premium stuff, but I'd love to get your perspective too. What, uh, what led you into this game and what, you know, kind of, how does that work for you? What are your operations look like?
1: Yeah. You know, I had a pretty similar experience. Like the pandemic just like scared me big time because, you know, I lost my income and, uh, it was just, a uh... Yeah, you know, I was really worried about I'm losing my house and all this stuff. And uh, I realized that, you know, I can't uh, rely on only having a gym. I need to make be able to make money online, too. So, you know, I knew I had like a skill set of being able to teach really well, teach you to do very well. So I figured, well, you know, I'd like always want to start a YouTube channel. And what better time than now? Because, you know, it was like the third lockdown here in Ontario. And yeah, I was like super depressed. I'm like, you know, things are not going good for me at all. You know, my gym's closed again and I'm not making any money. So, you know, I got to, you know, do something with my time and do something great because for me, like, I don't know just the way my mind works and the way I am. It's just like, you know, I want to achieve like so much and I want my life to be like a really interesting story at the end. So, you know, for me, like, I want to use, you know, my, my like not fame I guess but my notoriety and and what I'm creating to build off of that and in the future you know go into like a different or a bigger niche a bigger like expand more like I don't know exactly what I want to do yet I still got to figure that out but yeah like my whole goal is just to just succeed making money online selling online courses because that's just what I want to do it's like uh something that's like always been a huge goal so you know, I want to use like jujitsu to help me get there. And yeah, like, I obviously enjoy helping people too. But it's like, you know, you can have two reasons to doing something. I really like helping people. Because one thing I think is that like, there's a lot of like, not great instructors out there in person and online and just hard for people to navigate jujitsu. And I've always like viewed jujitsu as like a lot, well, not always, like, when I got my black belt and the more I understood jiu-jitsu, the more I realized how simple it is. And a lot of people kind of overcomplicated. So, you know, I didn't want to, you know, be the person that makes it so much more simple for people. So, yeah, there's like a lot of reasons that I kind of went into it. And, yeah, I really enjoy it. But, you know, for me, like right now, I feel like I'm like just sustaining. Like I'm doing like, wow, like I have 120,000 subscribers and I'm doing it's like, you know, it is where it is. And like, same with the gym it's doing well, like 200 members. And, you know, it's kind of staying around there going up slowly and same with the subscribers. But, you know, I want to get like, you know, 500,000 subscribers. I want my gym to be like 500 members. So, you know, I'm just working all the time just to grow and just to accomplish, you know, new and better things because that's what I find fun in life. It's just like achieving things and kind of like blowing people's minds and just like showing people I can do cool things. So like, yeah. I have a pretty unique, I guess, perspective and motivation behind like doing everything that I do.
0: Awesome. Well, that's great to share, man. Thanks a lot for, for letting us know. And yeah, I'm always happy to see another fellow Canadian make an impact on the jiu-jitsu scene. So that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. Glad things are going well too. And like you said, I, I you know, I think jujitsu is at the point where we're kind of in the middle or of, or maybe even in the beginning of a, a massive growth phase. Yeah. people look at jujitsu as a big sport right now but honestly it really is not it's very very tiny still i think there's still so much room to expand and grow and i'm i'm really hoping that over the next 10 years we see a complete evolution of this thing i would love to see jujitsu in every high school just like wrestling is right that would just be fantastic if that could ever happen
1: yeah i agree so much i think it's growing so much now so which is why i'm really happy that i got into constant creation when i did because i think that you know, sometimes people think that it's too late to get into this kind of stuff. There's already, you know, YouTubers or podcasters, you know, doing a great job. But it's like, you know, they, we're still very early on in the sport. So if I can get in now, which I did, it's so like I know that in ten years from now, or even even five years from now, it's just going to be exponentially bigger because of the growth of the sport as well. I know Danahar was saying the same thing that that it's just going to explode in popularity, and in part to like guys like Gordon Ryan making it more interesting the sport and you know more accessible to people and yeah, I just uh, I just love seeing judo grow. It's a great sport. Everyone should do it, and yeah, it's just great to see well with that said let's pivot
0: into our talk here because one of the things that often prevents people from from growing into jujitsu and prevents the growth of the sport is of course when people quit drop off get injured and that's where safety comes into play and i wanted to talk about this here with you because there's kind of two sides to the coin on one hand i think there's a lot that most gyms could do to teach their students better about how to train safely On the other hand, one of the places where people often fail to stay safe is in scrambles because they don't know how to do that safely and they don't know how to scramble effectively. And I thought that this dilemma would be a good chat with you because you're kind of known for a few things, one of which is advocating for safe training practices but the other of which is advocating for effective scrambles. I know that scrambling is something that you've talked about quite a bit. We we discussed this a little bit prior to recording. So maybe give me a bit of a framework here. I mean, when we talk about how to keep our students safe and even our pro competitors safe, what do you normally suggest or advise in terms of what most athletes and even hobbyists could be doing to train more safely on the mats?
1: Well, I think it's like uh, two... I think it's like different for both people it's different for hobbyists and it's different for our competitors so let's we'll start with hobbyists like the most important thing you can do is just to pick safe training partners to train with because not every training partner is safe especially the hobbyist level because when you're a competitor you're mostly rolling in people that know what they're doing and know how to keep you safe and keep themselves safe like they they do the right movements like the movements that make sense you can kind of you know it's all familiar but when you go with like someone that's newer They just do so many wild things. It's like you, they're so unpredictable. So it makes it so much more dangerous. So I think competitors, it's usually they get hurt by like either freak accidents or like being stubborn and not tapping to things. But when it comes to hobbyists, especially when it comes to like scrambles and stuff like that, because like especially newer people, it's like the whole role is almost a scramble because they don't know how to control position and, you know, just settle in position. So and there's so many ways you can get hurt in jujitsu that like, it's like, it can be so dangerous for, for beginners. But, you know, I feel like when I roll, I don't feel an, in danger at all. I know exactly how to, you know, how to position my body, how to stay safe, how to avoid like, you know, freak accidents for the most part, you know, things can still happen. So I feel like, okay, I feel hundred percent safe, but I know that, you know, hobbyists and new people don't, so they, they view it as a very dangerous sport. So you know, how can I give people my knowledge to, you know, keep themselves safe? So yeah, the most important thing is definitely, you know, pick people that are safe to train with. And then also, you know, just know your limits and and tap on time, tap early, tap often. We all know that quote. And then it's also about keeping your body safe too. You know, we have like a performance longevity course that we sell online. It's like it goes over mat safety, it goes over nutrition, it goes over strength and conditioning and mobility. So these are all really important things to, you know, keep your body, you know it makes like a a resilient body and then the three things and then the mat safety, it avoids all the dangerous positions. So I think if someone really wants to stay safe on the mats, they need to, they need to do that They need to keep their body safe and resilient. So it's really, uh, yeah, it's really two things. And uh, yeah, beginners, like they just do all sorts of wild stuff and they think that jujitsu is more dangerous than other sports, but I a hundred percent disagree. So whenever I see someone say like, oh, you know, jujitsu is more dangerous. It's like one of the most dangerous sports or anything like that. It's like, that's totally not true. There's like, even like, like hockey, like we're Canadians. So like, you know, like hockey players are in the physiotherapist's office more so than jujitsu players because they they hurt their knees or shoulders, concussions, all sorts of problems. And like jujitsu is like way less impact if you're, if you're careful with it. So it really comes down to like training mentality and understanding of what's safe and what's not. And yeah, I want people to train Jiu-Jitsu for as long as they can and and so i want to give that information to people and it's not only just like that it's also like there's a lot of poor like gym culture out there there's like a lot of like toxic gyms and just gym rivalries people going hard as hell on each other trying to hurt each other and uh yeah i don't like any of that stuff i just want to have a good time training and just yeah i want everyone to feel safe so it's really important to me in my gym that you know everyone takes care of each other and you know doesn't go too crazy
0: yeah, there's a ton to unpack there. I I love first and foremost that you brought up the importance of prevention and maintenance because, you know, injury prevention kind of begins before you get into the bad, dangerous situation. If you're taking care of your body and your health, that's always going to put you in a better position to avoid injuries and also if you do get injured, to recover from them effectively. So, I think it's fantastic that you're talking about that. I think this is a place where many gyms fail to take care of their students. You know, they We've talked about this on the podcast how the kind of traditional way that that gyms operate is they'll take all of the new white belts and they'll kind of throw them into the fight pit just to demonstrate how effective the art is and that's kind of almost part of the sales pitch and although I, I understand where that logic comes from what you wind up with is a bunch of very early on injured white belts so if that happens if you've got people getting injured in the first month of training and then leaving the mats and never training again I don't think that as an instructor, you're really serving the goal of jujitsu, which is to, one of the goals is to improve your quality of life. So if you've got all of your white belts going in there and beating the crap out of each other before they even know how to take care of themselves, and they're dropping off in year one because they're getting devastating injuries, I mean, how is that really helping further jiu-jitsu along if you're just driving people away from the sport. So that's something that I think about a lot is what as instructors we could do to help better prepare students so that they they don't go into those situations and get injured right away and and leave, right? I mean, the last thing that I want is someone to try jiu-jitsu, blow out their knee in the first week, suffer for the rest of their life and never train jiu-jitsu
1: again. Exactly. And that's why you know, I'm not a huge fan of beginner classes because you know if you throw a bunch of beginners together <laughs> they're going to hurt each other like they don't know anything and uh and they have egos and they just go crazy so i've never been a huge fan of beginner classes and for me like i think that fundamentals are more important than anything so like you know white belts up to black belts should be practicing the same stuff for the most part but then they should also have like an advanced class to like you know to further the knowledge or we can do too is you can like give like a more like a beginner kind of move and then give an option for like uh, the advanced kind of guys. So yeah, I, I don't like beginner classes at all. And uh, one thing too about, uh, yeah, when we talked about like mobility and stuff, it's like kids, like they rarely ever get hurt because their, their bodies are so mobile and so like almost like elastic. So, you know, that's what people should try to strive towards getting their body back to like how it was when they were a kid, because Yeah, again, it's like I can see so many times like uh, potential injuries in my kids class and, you know, I want to avoid them and try to. But, you know, it can be hard, but like they never get injured because they can just their limbs and everything can just take so much more of a beating than adults. So you can see a group of kids do the same exact thing and see adults do the same thing and the adults will be the one that that gets hurt. So, yeah, you need to keep your body uh, safe and you got to keep beginners away from each other because they're crazy. (laughs)
0: yeah i think beyond that too the other thing about adults versus kids is when kids go into class for them the class is often very gamified the kids are there and the goal is to have fun and to learn whereas with adults especially with the white belts like you mentioned earlier the ego often gets in the way and sometimes people are less concerned about learning and more concerned about winning, which is always a bad mentality to bring onto the mats. So, I mean, you're not likely to see this with your five-year-old kids in, in class, right? Where they practice an arm bar and one kid just reefs on the arm as hard as he can because he wants to get the tap. But in the adult class, you will see that. And you'll also see the person just refuse to tap and defend until the last minute, even if they don't know how to defend properly, because again, the ego gets in the way. So I think that all of those things are things that as a coach, you kind of want to set the culture properly before you even get into telling people about individual techniques and what to train. You want to kind of create this gamified, playful environment where people don't feel the need to win in class because that is often the root of many injuries.
1: Yeah, 100%. So I think like it's kind of like two things. I only you should completely not try to win in the gym. Cause I think there's like a stigma around that. You can't say like, you know, you beat your training partner. I, I think you shouldn't say that out loud. But I think that you can like think it in one sense just because, you know, we are doing a sport that's competitive. But it's so you need to have like a healthy balance between like, you know, trying to – quote unquote beat your training partner because that's what makes you better but at the same time not so much so that you're going to do absolutely anything possible to to beat them so you know i see when someone gets in a bad position usually beginners they just want to put more muscle and more strength into it to get out and it just never helps it's like they need to put technique into it and uh, one thing that helps me too is keep my gym relatively uh, injury free like we rarely have injuries but they do occur sometimes it's like anytime i teach a technique that has potential for injury i'll always go over that aspect of it too so it's not just like teaching the technique it's also teaching what can go wrong in the technique and there's like so many areas there's so many techniques that can be dangerous so even things like you know like the knee slide people wouldn't think that the knee slide is dangerous and overall it's not but like if you try to just force your ankle out between their legs at all costs you're going to twist your knee and you're going to have a lot of issues with it and there's a lot of techniques like that you know a lot of throws a lot of takedowns for two like just things like uh, Osotogari, when people like hurt each other all the time with Osotogari or hip throw too is a good example because they don't get the people on their on their tippy toes before they go for the throw and then they force it and then just like their leg collapses all weird and it's just like uh, it's really painful to see. So, you know, if instructors can teach their students the safety part of it too and not just how to do it, it's going to lead to a lot less injuries.
0: Yeah, that's actually a great point of clarification. And I, I should clarify this here. When I when I say that you're not necessarily trying to win, that's not entirely true. Because look, if you just simply aren't trying to win, then you run the risk of building passive habits where basically you're not trying to actually dominate and control the fight. And you don't want to turn into one of those grapplers where you're afraid to pull the trigger. The way that I, I would phrase it is you want to try to win the game and learn as opposed to you want to try to win the fight right because the goal is really to learn and to have fun and to get better so if you get stuck in a bad situation right to some extent you need to accept that and focus on okay how do I learn to get out of here versus like you said trying to basically yeet your way out of the position right rely on muscle and strength and possibly lead to some injury it's more of a mentality thing you're still trying to to win but ultimately you're trying to win by learning and doing the technique properly versus trying to win at any possible cost
1: 100% and a great example of that is I have two uh, teenagers in my class and this happened just recently where one of them got like they were rolling and you know they're teenagers so a lot of testosterone in them and a lot of like of uh, you know just emotion in general and they were kind of you know just like going really hard with each other and being rough and then after like exchanging some words and I'm like guys like you guys are teammates and like don't don't do that and then you know, I told them too, it's like, you know, don't retaliate by just putting more force and more strength into it. Retaliate by getting better than them. You know, if it's like, if you want to beat this person, don't put more strength and be rougher, just like do absolutely everything you can to get better at jujitsu. So become more technical, which is like the same mentality I had, not just for, you know, that kind of stuff, but just in general, it's like, you know, I want to beat everyone. That was my mentality, you know, from like day one it still is now so like if i can't do that then i have to rely on like you know being rough and and going hard using strength that's like that's not going to work you know i got to keep getting more and more technical so that i can beat the people that would piss me off if they could beat me right so everyone should strive towards it's like you know don't retaliate with uh, anger or anything like that and try to win with that kind of stuff try to win by being the best grappler you can be and study absolutely everything you can in judo, and you know really uh, dedicate yourself to it and if you don't want to put in that work then you probably don't want to be probably doesn't matter that much to you as much as you think it does you know for me it's like that mattered to me a lot you know i hate losing i'm super competitive so you know nothing can be done other than get better at judo. so there's no point in just like doing other things like yeah going hard and being rough
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also worth pointing out too, that it's a good exercise for everyone who trains jujitsu to Introspect a little bit and think of okay, what is my personal risk profile? Like, how much risk am I willing to accept by training this? Uh, with any athletic endeavor, of course, there's a degree of risk. But if you're, you know, if for example, you are a casual grappler and you're just doing this for fitness and you have no competitive goals, you probably have a, a lower tolerance for risk of injury than someone who wants to make jiu jitsu their full time job. Because, of course, if you're going to go into competition and you want to be a pro competitor, you are accepting a higher risk of injury than you know some someone who maybe does this casually and maybe you know they want to be able to pick up their kids afterwards and play with their kids they might have a a lower tolerance for injury and i think that that's something to always think about because that does in some way impact the way that you play your game. There's certain techniques that are very effective, but might just have a slightly higher risk of injury than other techniques. And I think that's always something to be consciously deliberate about. I I know that in jujitsu, we often talk about all techniques like they're equal and they should work for everyone. And if you can't do it, there's something wrong with you. But in reality, I've always thought it's totally fine to add or remove elements to your game based on your lifestyle goals like I, I would never for example tell a a hobbyist to adopt the level of risk that a competitor might take because for a hobbyist they, they have different goals and I, I think it's worth always considering that which is again not again not to say that you should shy away from doing things but just that I think everyone should think more deeply about safety and what their training goals are before they step on the mat
1: yeah you know I agree and I think that like it's always not funny but interesting that like hobbyists or beginners they can still have such an ego but even even though they're not going to be pro competitors they're never going to put in that work or have that desire to do that so i feel like if you don't want to be in the best in the world then like what does it really matter if someone at the gym can you know beat you it's like not that it's fine you know it's just a sport you guys it's just recreational so like you know i think people can only really complain about their results if like they're putting in the work to justify you know well not justify to become the best grappler they can be you know if you're putting in, doing absolutely everything you can to become the best grappler you can be and you're still getting beat up yeah that sucks and you know that's something you can kind of complain about but if you're just showing up like you know three four times a week or even twice a week which is absolutely fine for a hobbyist then they shouldn't really complain so much that they're you know they're losing in training or anything like that like you know they're not putting in the work but they're not that's not what they're there for so yeah I never really understood that so much and I think it also comes back to I know we're talking about like winning in the gym you know it's like you need to find like a a balance 100 percent between like safety and like winning and because it's different in a competition you know in this competition I'll do almost anything to win like nothing dirty but in terms of my own body and the risk I'll take you know, I'll take a lot of risk other than like, you know, hurting my knees, or anything like that. But like, you know, one time I, I kind of let my ankle like kind of break. And then I still I still won by rearing a choke. And that to me was worth it. But like, you know, in the gym, I'm not going to do that. So like, it's a totally different mentality. It's not like when it all cost at the gym. And plus people still have that mentality. And that's how they get hurt. So they need to uh, yeah tone it down and realize they're not going to be the best in the world unless they want to be and put in that work. So like, they shouldn't complain that they're not the best in the world.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting inferiority complex that people get in jujitsu that I I don't often see in other disciplines. Like, as an example, I can't imagine hiring an accountant to do my taxes and then looking at how well they do them and being like man, I can barely put a spreadsheet together. I'm such a failure. Look at how much better this, this accountant is at accounting than me. You know, you accept that these people are professionals. So of course they're going to be better than you because they do this for a living. And I think that hobbyists also beat themselves up way too much over this, where they, they compare themselves to competitors who are literally training 20 times more frequently than they are. And they expect to be on the same level. And like, look, you got to understand it's a different track, right? If you are a hobbyist and you've achieved, achieved blue belt or higher, you're already more dangerous than 99% of the general population. But you've got to accept that you're just not going to be better than someone who literally trains this as a full-time job and you have to embrace that, right? You have to try to to work within that. You know, you can learn so much from these pros around you and they can still get a ton of value out of training with you, but what you you don't want to do is let your ego get impacted and feel like you're terrible just because you can't perform to the same level as a professional. Like that's just an unfair expectation to put on yourself. And I think that's where a lot of injuries actually come from, especially for hobbyists is because they've got this inferiority complex and they want to be dominant, but they don't want to be a pro. And they wind up kind of making dumb decisions on the training mats because they, they refuse to lose. I had someone on the podcast recently, I think it might've been Rob Bernanke, and he was saying that, you know, actually he feels the most dangerous people on the mats are the hobbyists because the competitors look, they have training and they also have table stakes. They know that they don't want to get injured in class because they got to go compete and they've got the experience to avoid injury but for hobbyists, this is fight club, right? This might be a person who has never done a physically violent activity in their life. This is their opportunity to feel like an alpha male and they just can't control the dial, right? So they just go hundred percent. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's something to that because I never feel at risk when I'm training with black belts, especially pros, but I feel terrified when I'm training with the white belts, even if they're older, unathletic people, they scare me because I know, like you said earlier, they will do anything to win
1: exactly i think it's so i think it's so silly because like for example like i play guitar but i'm not very good like i'm like a blue belt level in guitar but that's like fine with me you know i'm not like i don't need to be a black belt level in guitar to enjoy playing it you know and i'm not going to put in the work i don't have the time or desire to put in the work every day to become the best guitarist in the world you know it's it's fine being like just okay at it but like you know with jujitsu it's like people they still want to be the best you know and you know like you said even like white belts are definitely the most dangerous especially like the bigger ones like for me like you know i'm like a good size like 195 pounds so i can like you know deal with the big white belts just fine but like i know if i was smaller like my friend joey he's like 150 pounds he's a black belt you know he's like at, at so much risk of rolling with like a 250 pound white belt that's just going crazy you know even though he's got the skill it's like sometimes people think that jiu is like magic and has this like i don't know like lore to it but it's like you know like this is a reality and jiu is just how your body works and using your body in effective ways to get the job done so yeah, size matters a lot. And the the kind of people you train with, because there's some people that are really big that are white belts that, you know, are super fine to to train with. They're absolutely no issue. But then there's some that are just like crazy. And yeah, they just just think that, I don't know. I don't know what they're expecting. If they put more force and more everything into it, they're going to be better jujitsu. It's like, no, you got to put more technique into it. So yeah, it's a little bit of a frustrating thing to witness because so many people have a better time at jujitsu if people just like chilled a little bit more and kind of had the same mentality towards Jiu-Jitsu that I have towards guitar, you know, I don't have to be the best at everything, but like the things that I do want to be the best at, I'm going to put in the effort to, to get there. So yeah, I think just because like Jiu-Jitsu is like a fighting sport, that's like, uh, you know, really, I guess like primal, you could say. And I think people feel like, especially men, almost like it's like uh, tied to their like masculinity and almost like identity, you know, if they get their butt kicked by someone smaller or less experienced, it's like, they're less of like a man or something like that but it's like no it's fine you know it's okay not to be the best at jujitsu and you know lose a little bit it's no issue so yeah it's a it's a funny thing.
0: Yeah, I mean even the best in the world lose, right? It it happens. It, it's not necessarily a reflection of how good or bad you are, especially at the beginning of your journey, right? I mean, uh, your skill level at white belt is a total wash. You can't really tell anything about how good or bad someone's going to be based on where they're at at white belt because the technique level is so low at that point. And so I think people sometimes, especially at that belt, they're overly focused on winning. And they get really upset because they understandably can't win all the time. But the problem is sometimes then if the ego gets in the way, they, they go nuts and they start trying to explode out of these positions and they don't understand their, what their body is doing. Very common, for example, for someone to just go totally athletic and forget where their arms or legs are and they leave one leg behind and then it gets twisted and then they're on the shelf for nine months, right? Yeah. I think that's probably as good a, a transition as any to the other side of this that I wanted to talk to you about, which is scrambling. I would venture to guess that scrambles are probably one of the main areas where injuries occur. And I would also venture to guess that that's probably because for a lot of people, especially unexperienced people, they use scrambling as basically a blanket term for, hey, I don't know what this position is or what to do from here. So I'm just going to go nuts. <laughs> right? yeah. So I know that Rob Bernanke, for example, has kind of facetiously said there's no such thing as a scramble. And because what he's trying to say there, the point he's trying to make is When people say scramble, they often mean, like, I am in between positions in an unfamiliar situation, I don't know the right technique to do, so I'm just going to pull the athletic trigger here and just rely on that. And whenever you abandon technique in favor of muscle and power and speed, you're dramatically opening up the risk of injury. So with that said, though, I would love to talk to you about scrambles because they are such an important part of the sport. But I'd also love to get a, an idea of how you define a scramble and how you do it safely.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, yeah, someone asked me that a while ago, like, how do you define a scramble? I, I thought that was a really interesting question. And like for me how i would describe it is it's when neither opponent has dominant grips on each other and then so neither one can control each other and you're working towards getting to a position that you can control the other person so i like rob a lot i think his stuff's great but for this i disagree with him i think scrambles are absolutely a thing you know like because you can be technical within your scrambles and yeah 100 you can be technical within the scrambles and just like you know you just I don't think that they're possible to avoid unless you just always have dominant grips on people. And yeah. So like, you know, for example, if someone has like, I don't know, like an underhook on you from the bottom and then you're on top and you're trying to, you know, I guess they do have a dominant grip on you in that sense, but they're trying to do something with it and they're trying to do something with it fast. You got to quickly address it. And there's not always like, you know, you can't always do it slow it's like you got to do things fast and then they're trying to adjust to you and uh you can just create so much like chaos but not not in a bad way there can be like there's definitely a lot of bad scrambles a lot of like chaotic like negative scrambles but then there's also like beautiful scrambles so like you know i really love scrambles especially because you know i'm like a pretty athletic guy like i'm fast and i'm strong so like and, and have good reflexes so like I really try to create scramble as much as possible, especially going against like people that are very like strong and tight with their, with their style. So for example, I had a match against a 10 planet black belt, who's like 228 pounds. And you know, I was just doing things, I was doing things to kind of create scrambles. So like I had his back, I took a hook out trying to get him to move. So I'm trying to like, you know, attack him during the scramble because at that point I don't have the completely dominant grips on him. He's still able to move, which, which is what I want. And then, you know, another example, like he was trying to body lock past me for my clothes guard, but it's like, you know, that's not really going to happen and I can't do anything either. So I just open my legs up and then try to get him to to initiate the passing and then, you know, create a scramble out of that. So it's an issue with beginners because they don't know, they don't know like what they're doing so much and they'll just kind of flail and, you know, do all sorts of crazy stuff, but I think like a higher level scrambles are so beautiful and so entertaining and so enjoyable. Like for me, there's like nothing more fun than being in like a fast paced scramble. I really enjoy that.
0: I like the way that you've defined scrambles here. And I think that might be a definition I steal because um, a definition that I often hear from people is they'll say a scramble is when you don't know what technique to use, or maybe there isn't a good technique to use. So you rely on athleticism. And I think that's a poor definition because UC scrambles right up to the highest levels. I mean, are you going to tell me that Gordon Ryan doesn't know aspects of, of jiu-jitsu and so he's relying just on athleticism sometimes you just get caught in transitions and as you mentioned no one has dominant grip control so you have to keep moving because the other person is moving too and I think that's a great definition of scrambles that you provided which is no one has dominant grips on the other so because of that no one can be held down so there's going to be a lot of movement until someone locks up the dominant grips and I think your definition there also explains why you see scramble so much more in no gi than in the gi because in the gi it's just so easy to grab someone and just stick them where you want them to go whereas in no gi grips are much more valuable and much harder to control for long periods of time so i think that's a good working definition for a scramble
1: yeah, and like like you said, they happen a lot in transitions. And what transitions are for the most part is when you let go of your dominant grips and working towards other dominant grips. And for people who don't know what the difference between a grip is and a dominant grip, the way I define a dominant grip, it would be a grip that controls the other person in a way that they can't attack you so like you know an underhook can be a dominant grip but if you have it and they're on their side like if you have it on them and they get on their side create an angle and get like almost potter or something well it's not really a dominant grip because you're not controlling them so it's only a dominant grip if you're controlling them right so yeah when you when you transition you create opportunities to or for them to take advantage of the fact you don't have a you don't have dominant grip so you know, wrestling is a really good example too. It's like in wrestling, it's just like Scramble City because there's no gi, obviously it's no gi and no, you can't tell them that they're not technical. You know, like wrestlers are extremely technical in their scrambles, especially. So yeah.
0: Yeah. That's actually a a really nice way to look at things because you're right. I I think that in a lot of ways, wrestlers are often, you know, they, they have probably superior methods than most jujitsu gyms and I think just because it's a sport that's had more time in the oven right and I think they integrate a lot more sports psychology and coaching practices so yeah you're not going to be able to tell those people they don't know what they're doing and they're non-technical I think you're right that it just comes down to you know are your grips dominant and I love that you brought that up because this is one of my main things that I, I try to educate people here on this podcast about not all grips are good grips a grip has to be dominant in order for it to be a good grip and white belts make this mistake all the time where they'll be like a a monkey with the hand in the cookie jar they just grab onto anything and they won't let go and sometimes especially in the gi they'll you know they'll grab your fabric at an angle or a position where they realistically couldn't do anything with that grip if they wanted to and I mean, for me as their opponent, that's great, right? Because if their hands are occupied doing nothing useful, I can take advantage of that because they're not using all of their, their tools effectively. So I always tell people, look, with a grip, you need to be able to have some control over your opponent. You know, can you push them? Can you pull them? Can you keep them at a weird angle? That's what makes a grip dominant. Is it, is it achieving a purpose? If you're just grabbing something and realistically you can't use it to manipulate your opponent, you got to find a better grip, right? Because at that point, it's just not helping you and you're wasting an arm.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I say all the time on the channel that every grip needs a purpose because, you know, you can grab anywhere really, and not all grips are created equal. So, like, for a good example, too, I was rolling with a brown belt yesterday and know i'm trying to help him with his you know his game so before he was kind of like a training partner that's kind of how i viewed him and kind of let him do his thing but like you know he didn't get the competition results that he wanted at a recent tournament so i'm like okay i'm really gonna like when i roll with you i'm really gonna dissect your game and kind of go over all the mistakes you're making all the things you can do better so i think it's really gonna help him and you know he just took a grip on my sleeve as i was trying to pass and i'm like whoa you know, it's not my hands really that are doing the work to pass your guard. You know, it's like my legs. So you need to control my legs because that's, what's going to be initiating the knee slide and backstepping and stuff like that. So I told them, you know, don't grab my sleeve. And, you know, in some circumstances, like collar and sleep, like there are times it does make sense to grab the sleeve, but not always. It depends what position you're in. So in that specific position, it was like kind of like headquarters. It's like, you know, when I was trying to knee slide, there's a better place to grip. You know, I think especially in gi, it's the best example of like what grips you should take. It's like I think all guards, in my opinion, are just like they're just grips. There's grips you take with your hands and your legs, mostly with your legs. Most guards are just grips you take with your legs. So like reverse delhiva it's just like a grip you take with your leg. a grip you take with your leg. Lasso, same thing. You loop your leg around your foot around, and you have a lasso guard. So. You know, in the gi, it's so much about controlling your opponent's movement when you're in your guard and stopping them from being able to get angles on you, for able to do what they want to do. So, you need to take dominant grips that don't allow them to move around. So, if you just take, you know, any old grip wherever you can grab and it doesn't stop them, it doesn't limit their mobility, and it's a pretty useless grip. You know, it might have some purpose, but not enough to justify taking it. So, you know, every position kind of requires specific grips but there's like you know almost like a hierarchy of grips you can take and a lot of times beginners that's their most common mistake they make so i do like blue belt mistakes and white belt mistake videos on youtube and like so much so much of it is just like where they're gripping it's like you know this grip doesn't make sense i don't know why they're why they're grabbing there i'll even ask them after it's like why'd you grab there and then they don't even know so which makes sense you know because they're beginners You know, white belts and blue belts. So, like, it's fine that they don't know, but, you know, that's what we're trying to correct. We're trying to get them to make better choices with their grips.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something I heard Stefan Kesting talk about one time is how a common beginner mistake is they're so focused on positions that they forget about the transitions and the movements in between those positions. So as an example, a common thing that happens with beginners is as soon as you're about to pass their guard, they just kind of give up and just go to side control. Like they, they don't really take advantage of that scramble window in between where they could get out. And part of it is probably because we don't recognize that transition as an official jujitsu position, right? We tell people about, okay, here's various open guards and here's side control and here's the passes that go from one to the other. And so what happens a lot of the time is because beginners learn these positions explicitly, they're comfortable and used to them. And sometimes I find, you know, you might be in the process of passing a beginner's guard and they just kind of yield and they just let you go to side control and they give up that window. And sometimes when you advance the position, they're still holding the grips they had when they were in guard, not realizing they're still, you know, those grips are no longer useful. The sleeve grip you brought up is a great example, right? Someone might tie you up in spider guard and maybe those sleeve grips make perfect sense in that position. But as soon as I start passing you, now I, I start clearing the hands, and, you know, now I'm not so worried about those grips and I can, I can pass you if I can get your feet off my biceps, for example. But sometimes beginners, they don't realize that and they'll still just hold onto those sleeve grips rendering their arms completely useless as you're passing their guard. So a bit of good advice I like to give beginners is to understand that there's a lot of music between the notes, you know, there's a lot of important movement and dynamics between the positions. And one of the best things that you can do as your opponent is transitioning. So the when they're about to pass your guard is you've got to start thinking, okay, are are my hands and my feet still effective or do they need to be repositioned? I'm um, constantly being able to reposition to make sure you're always using your hands and feet effectively, depending on what your opponent does. That's one of the things that makes you fluid and makes you a good high level grappler.
1: Exactly. And oftentimes like sleeve grips, someone grabs your sleeve, you can still move your hand and move your arm. So it's like not limiting your mobility. So more often than not, a sleeve grip isn't uh, great unless it's like two on one, which you know it's very circumstantial so like it definitely depends and what happens a lot is like when people get the guard pass they just kind of reach up and take these like terrible grips so like well, i'm talking about beginners so like i think it's because you know side control is taught like when you're on top you have an underhook and you have a uh, cross face So like when they're on the bottom, you just figure that's where you got to go to. But it's like, no, like you do not want to put your hands there whatsoever. You need to get framed. So bring your uh, hands in front of you. I call it T-Rex arms because, you know, T-Rexes, they keep their elbows close to their body. And because, yeah, they, they got short arms so like you know and that's what it is is frames i think people don't really understand like the importance of frames like they might hear it they might hear like you know you got to get frames but they don't really understand what they do or why they have to use them and it's to prevent inside position so like uh, cross face and underhook that's inside position that's really bad if you let someone get it on you and if you use frames well frames prevent inside position because they keep their your opponent away from you so you know if you get your guard passed the first thought should be is to put your arms in a safe place in a safe position and don't allow inside position and uh yeah it's just such a tough thing for people to really uh grasp and they just take <laughs> the worst possible grips and then wonder why um why they keep getting submitted
0: yeah yeah i i do love when i've i've got someone pinned inside control with a cross face and they're doing weird stuff like they're still trying to grab my collar or they're still trying to control my sleeve from bottom side control like they just have again it's like that monkey with the hand in the cookie jar who just won't let go i think the way that you explain this is is a good thing and that's similar to what i always tell people like i always say You know, if you go to a boxing gym, the first thing they're going to teach you is chin down, hands up, footwork, right? And they're always going to tell you that. That's your foundation. You can do pretty much whatever you want beyond that, but the base foundation of everything you want to do is, okay, you want to have your chin down, your hands up, and your footwork. And if you don't know what to do at any point, probably retracting back to that position is a good idea. And I generally advocate the same thing in jujitsu. You know, if, if you don't have a better idea with what to do with your arms, for example, you should probably retract them. That's not to say you can't ever stiff arm or straight arm, but when you do that, it's gotta be safely and with a reason. And if you're in that kind of position where you're getting squished on the bottom or you think you're about to get squished on the bottom, a good safe position is you bring in your arms and you create those frames, right? Because that's always gonna make it easier to escape. It's gonna make it easier to block the cross face. It's not the only thing you can do but it's a good default if you don't have a better idea is to bring your arms in and create frames similarly with your legs too i mean you don't necessarily use your legs the same way as your arms but generally speaking you don't want to leave your leg out where your opponent can easily grab and control it if you have a better alternative right a big a big part of jiu-jitsu is grip denial and preventing your opponent from controlling your limbs and so look if you don't have a better idea of what to do being defensive and retracting everything is a good start right especially as a beginner
1: yeah i agree and i always really like uh striking analogies to jujitsu because they make it really like simple to understand so it's like i feel like you know the way side control is taught it's like again it's like you just let the person take grips almost because every attack you do from side control when you learn it in the gym is that like you already have these good grips so like you know, I think it should be like not like that. It should be like, OK, you have the person inside control. They're keeping their elbows tight. Now you need to work towards getting these good grips on them and then getting the submission. So it's like in striking, it's like you wouldn't like teach someone, you know, punch them when their hands are down. You know, they keep their hands down. That's when you land the punches, you know, because no one's really going to do that. So I feel like it's unless they're terrible, like unless they're a beginner or unless they're really good and have a good understanding of when they can keep their hands down. And so, but that's kind of, kind of like different, but you know, so yeah, I think that like realistic jujitsu scenarios should be taught a little bit more in jujitsu, right? Because again, like, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. I think the reason why so many people grab up from uh, side controls because that's just the way they, taught to be attacked so you know keep your elbows tight keep your arms in and it makes such a world of difference and just very similar to in boxing or muay thai keeping your hands up
0: yeah i think that's a great point that when we train techniques we often train from a position where it starts and you've already got the dominant control which is not realistic in the real world getting the dominant control is way harder than executing the technique you're trying to do So it's weird that we focus on executing the technique, but we skip the part where you try to get the dominant control. A good example is if you take two jujitsu people, especially white belts, and you make them stand up against each other, they're probably just going to zombie walk towards each other and get 50-50 grips like judo, right? And they're just going to give up that grip to their opponent which is a terrible idea. The The smart thing to do is don't let your opponent grab you, right? You should be trying to actively grab them without letting them get a dominant counter grip on you. But because when we train takedowns, we start from the 50-50 grip most of the time, we just kind of take it for granted that that's the starting position. But in the real world, it's not, right? In the real world, you've got to fight to get that those kinds of grips and those kinds of control. And the same thing applies on the bottom. You know, when we when we start drilling these techniques, we already start from a position where your opponent is basically giving you the move that you want and that's just not realistic so I, th- I think there's a lot to be said about moving towards training in, in a more realistic setup and that might be a good example of why people often aren't fantastic at scrambles because they don't train them right they train from a, a situation when the scramble has already passed and you've already lost that scramble so people just go to what they're used to and that's i've already lost the scramble they just abandon it and they just give up the bad position
1: exactly i think one issue with the way jiu-jitsu taught is that like Often the in-between isn't taught. It's only like the actual moves themselves that are taught. But like everything, basically most of what happens is just like the in-between the techniques. So like more like conceptual type of stuff. So like really, you know, simple things like if you sweep someone, you need to keep their feet up or they're going to stand up, you know, or uh, just things like, you know, there's so many examples on my channel, you know, to win a scramble, you got to get your hips higher. So it's like these are kind of like the in-between the type of stuff that I'm trying to advocate and trying to like teach the most, which is why I think I've had so much success with my channel because it's not very widely taught this kind of stuff. And again, I call it like the in-between or like Jiu-Jitsu theory or whatever. And uh, it just seems like it's mostly just techniques that are taught constantly. But, you know, it's like, it's very similar to like you know striking like we like what we talked about. It's like you can learn how to do a jab and a cross and have great technique, but it's like you also need to just learn how to have good distance management, how to uh, have good footwork, and you know how to really read your opponent and stuff like that. It's like a lot of the in between that matters more, more so than your actual punches themselves. Like you know, someone that's like six months into boxing can have as good of a jab technically as a pro but it's like their ability to land it is going to be much more inferior because they don't have like the in-between type of stuff that's that's more important. It's very similar to jujitsu
0: yeah yeah i guess the example would be is it would be like if you walked into a boxing gym and the first thing they taught you was how to do superman punches and spinning back fists right you know they're teaching you techniques but in a bubble those techniques are meaningless especially if you're a beginner so that's not how they teach boxing right they're going to teach you the boring stuff but the important boring stuff that you need to really master before you move on to anything else in jiu-jitsu, we don't really do that. We go right to the spinning back fists and, and to the Superman punches, but we don't often teach the boring stuff enough. And I think that's a big point and a big part of where jiu-jitsu frustration comes from, where people are always upset because they can do the move perfectly in drilling, but they can never pull it off in sparring. And it's like, well, that's because you drilled a move in an unrealistic environment and you don't have the basic concepts and the basic movements to pull this off in reality.
1: Exactly. I think just, you know, in general, just who's taught, not like, it's just not taught great. And I think that it's like, getting better and better as instructors get better at really structuring their classes and getting better at teaching. Like, I think in the past, it was it was like way worse. And it's definitely getting better. But like, in the past, there's just like so many things don't make sense. It's just like teaching things like, you know, maybe teaching like, like five moves or something and then it's just like time to roll or whatever right so it's like I try to incorporate as much drilling as I can into the like live drilling as I can into into the classes but it's also tough too because you can't just live drill if you don't know the technique too so you know what I try to do is teach like you know two or three techniques and then do some drilling and you know have some periods of time where we do less drilling to really get that technique in and then have periods of time where we do more drilling so yeah, I think drilling is like the way to get better like with live resistance and you know just very situational drilling too so I think like you know if you're like wanting to get good at half guard passing, the best thing to do would be to live drill where you already have so the pass half guard you need to get your, your knee out first and your ankle out second, but then you also need to get dominant grips first to be able to do that. So, like, the best thing I think is to drill where you already have your knee out now, you're only your ankle stuck, so you like get good at like the end, like the finish of the pass, and then you work then you also drill where you know you have your knee stuck, but you do have like um, dominant grips in the form of like underhook or a cross face, and then you have to work towards getting your knee and your ankle out and then you work right from half guard without any dominant grips and now you need to work towards getting your your underhook or your cross face and you also need to work towards getting your knee out then you also got to work towards getting your ankle out so it's like you're practicing the late skills and then you're going to the early skills too and you're really mastering it all rather than just like okay this is how to do a half guard pass (laughs) and now everyone do it you know just do it in live in live uh rolling it's just hard to do so yeah, I think there's like a lot of uh, innovative ways to uh, get better jujitsu quicker and so many people quit jujitsu because it's just hard to learn for most people and that's because it's just not taught very well
0: yeah yeah i would agree completely
1: now you've mentioned that
0: you do a lot of concepts teaching and you have a course that you're developing around this and i would love to know when it comes to teaching people how to scramble more effectively and work within those transitions more effectively what kind of concepts do you teach and like what would you recommend that most gym owners add to their instruction to make their students better at this stuff
1: so for like scramble specifically i think the most important thing is to get your hips higher so if you want to you know get top position during a scramble it's really your hips you need to focus on so you need to get them higher and then above your opponent because if you're to the side then you don't really have weight on them right so you need to put your weight on them but into you your hips higher first and that's where the battle is won and lost so I think that's like the starting point and then you know scrambles are just hard to teach though just like overall you know there's like drills you can do so it's just like okay You can like sweep someone and then once their butt hits the ground, well, that's when the live drilling starts. You're working towards getting on top. They're working towards getting on top too. And again, whoever gets their hips higher is going to win that. So like you can do it where you sweep them and you let go of like one leg and then you like you can do it where you let go of two legs. But in reality, you don't want to let go of either leg because you need to control the legs to control them and make sure that they can't come up on top. But like, you know, when you roll, it's like all sorts of different things can happen. So it's good to train like all sorts of different scenarios. So it just depends on the position and because there's so many places you can scramble from. So it's hard to give like a specific, you know, drill or advice because you again, gotta again, so situational. But yeah, you know, I think, yeah, it's just like it's a harder thing to teach for sure. Scrambles because it does like, you know, athleticism does play a part into it. And, you know, people that are are kind of unathletic they should try to avoid scrambles as much as possible so they really need to work on you know staying tight and not giving up you know dominant grips and being very careful in their transitions where it's like someone that's athletic they can kind of get away with a lot more and even create scrambles even if they're start off in almost like at a disadvantage scramble because they know that they can work towards you know they can win that battle so like You know for example like you know i won't do this but like intentionally but just say if someone's about to take my back like with a rolling back attack like i feel like i'm really good at like reversing it and like rebulling them so like taking their back instead so like maybe i could like you know bait them to try to take my back and then you know take their back in the process so like but i again i'm like pretty athletic so i can i can do that so It really comes down to your physical limitations and your physical attributes. They matter a lot within scrambling, but they're not like the only factor. There's a lot of technique that goes into it as well.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, scrambles do have an athletic component. So, especially as you get older and slow down, it probably becomes less and less likely that you're going to rely on them. But still, important stuff to know because even if you don't want to scramble, your opponent might. (laughs) And I love that concept that you brought up about keeping your opponent's feet off the ground. That was a game changer for me when I figured it out. I remember when I was a junior belt, I used to do the uh, tripod sweep a lot. I I love the tripod sweep and I used to have a lot of success with it. But I would never bother to make sure that my my opponent's feet were were off the ground when they landed so I could knock them over onto their butt and then I would I would get up but I totally forgot to deal with their feet and I was able to get away with that against less experienced opponents until one day I, you know I fought a super scrambly super athletic high level competitor and every time I tripodted him and I was able to do it repeatedly but he would just bounce right back up to his feet right and I mean that doesn't get you any points if you're if you're playing in under IBJJF rules right if you're if you knock your opponent over and they just get right back up no points there for you so the important thing to prevent that is when you sweep someone over you want to hold their feet off the ground at least one both if possible and that's a really important thing for because it also kills your opponent's base in a lot of ways it's very hard for your opponent to base properly if their feet are up in the air that's another common beginner mistake i see that a lot when we do technique reviews for people is the beginner will be on the bottom in a bad position and their feet will just be like kicking up in the air doing absolutely nothing that's useless right your feet need to be connected and based off of something to to be useful whether it be off of your opponent or off of the floor and if you are trying to prevent your opponent from getting up one of the best things that you can do is grab their feet and don't let them put them on the floor that's a very important detail if both of you are like on the ground usually mid-sweep and you need to get up before your opponent does just make sure their feet don't touch the floor
1: yeah and it's so simple but and it's so like rarely taught so you know these kind of like concepts are so like important to me as i'm teaching like the tripod sweep for example really kind of like emphasizing the importance of controlling the legs because it's impossible to stand up if your feet can't touch the ground it's just you know, it's just impossible so like you know but these things aren't so obvious to like uh lower belts and a lot of higher belts just aren't teaching this stuff they're only teaching you know this side how you do the sweep but like they don't mention that aspect of it and there's so many there's so many things like that that are just so simple that just aren't widely talked about so i think that's why a lot of people have like light bulb moments watching my channel because they can just like implement these things right away just like, okay, yeah, you know, I can do that. You know, I wish my instructor just taught me that, you know, when they're teaching the technique and make things so much easier. And yeah, so I think I'm like kind of good at is like kind of simplifying jujitsu and like finding these kind of things that are like obvious to me and obvious to other, you know, black belts, but maybe not obvious for them to, you know, go over with people. It's like obvious when they think about it, but not so much obvious when they like teach it or yeah. So yeah, I think it's like, I really like kind of giving that information to people.
0: Well, if people want to get that information from you, where do they do it? Let's plug your stuff and make sure that we get some links in the show notes so that people can find it more easily. But how do people check out your work?
1: Yeah, it's uh, just got to search Jordan teaches Jiu Jitsu. The name is just like super obvious of what I do. I teach Jiu Jitsu. So on YouTube, again, Jordan teaches Jiu Jitsu. I also have a podcast talk Jitsu and uh, it's pretty good. And that's basically it. You know, you find me on Instagram, wherever just Jordan teaches Jiu
0: Awesome. And as I always do, I'll put those links in the show notes. So if anyone wants to check out Jordan's stuff, easy one click, just go into the show notes, tap the button. There you go. I'll also put in the link to BJJ Mental Models Premium. I think I talk about this at the end of every podcast, but there's a ton of stuff that we offer, a lot of it free, but also a lot of it on the premium end. If you want to check out any of that, you can go to BJJMentalModels.com. There's a full database of all of the concepts that we talk about here on the show, as well as a newsletter that you can sign up for. I definitely recommend you do. We send out a lot of valuable stuff through there. And of course, the full back catalog of over 200 hours of free podcast episodes. But if you want to kick it up to the next gear, that's what our premium stuff is for. You can sign up. It's a monthly subscription. You get the first week free, so you can try it at no risk. In addition to over 50 hours of, of audio courseware, we're actually just in the process now of launching a new course with uh, Rafael Lovato jr in addition to that you also get rolling reviews send us your footage and our black belt team will break it down and you get access to our awesome Discord community I definitely do recommend it again I know I'm biased but hey you can try it free no cost bjjmentalmodels.com. so please do consider it like we talked about earlier on the show you know it is a difficult job to to make this content like Jordan mentioned I know you you have an editor I have an editor too right there's a lot of costs to doing something like this it is as simple as you just put a mic in front of your face and and talk for an hour so it definitely greatly helps float the show and keep this thing going when you sign up for premium so please do consider it if you haven't already and similarly please do consider supporting jordan if you haven't already because same thing right like i know that a lot of people out there they they watch or consume hours of our content every week and maybe they think it's just some small thing to put together but it's a job man and you got to get paid to do this stuff so please do support jordan if you haven't already. Any other plugs, Jordan, or anything else you want to say as a closing thought?
1: Uh, no, I just want to say thank you one more time for having me on the show. Yeah, i wanted to be on it for a while. I uh, I really enjoyed your podcast before I even started the YouTube channel. I was like, you know, one day I want to be on the podcast. So it's really cool to be here today. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Awesome. Thanks a lot, buddy. I do appreciate it. And thanks to everyone listening to always appreciate your time. And we'll talk to you next week. See you soon.